Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we have a slightly different Thanksgiving week show for you. Instead of just giving you a clips show, I wanted to spotlight one of my favorite podcasts. We'll look at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art's Raw Material, which is beginning its third season this week. The program is produced by the museum and hosted by two podcasters in residence, Jessica Placzek and Madeline Gobo. Placzek is a reporter for San Francisco National Public Radio affiliate KQED, and Gobo is an illustrator and graduate fiction candidate at the University of California, Davis. Season three of Raw Material looks at California's land and landscapes and how artists and other creatives have made work there. After the break, we'll hear a clip and we'll hear my conversation with the two podcasters. You can find Raw Material by searching Raw Material in your podcatcher of choice, such as iTunes, or just visit manpodcast.com and we'll have links to some of the easiest places where you can subscribe to or download Raw Material. On the second segment, we'll hear my conversation with artist Andrea Chung from July. At the time, the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego was presenting an exhibition of her work. Now, she's in a two-person show at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles, as well as the Prospect Four Triennial in New Orleans. But first, the two hosts of SF MoMA's Raw Material, after a break. See six Pacific Standard Time exhibitions in San Diego for free or reduced admission over Thanksgiving weekend by simply showing an ID with an out-of-San Diego County zip code. Exhibitions include Art of the Americas, Pre-Columbian Art from Mingay's Collection at the Mingay International Museum, Memories of Underdevelopment, Art and the Decolonial Turn in Latin America, 1960-1985 at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, Point Counterpoint, Contemporary Mexican Photography at the Museum of Photographic Art San Diego, Undocumenta at Oceanside Museum of Art, Modern Masters from Latin America, the Perez Simon Collection at the San Diego Museum of Art, and Xerografia, Copy Art in Brazil 1970-1990 at the University of San Diego. More information at pstlalasandiego.org. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works, including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts, in a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life, Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. Attend an international symposium on December 9th. Indigenous Knowledge and the Making of Colonial America, and learn how Indigenous peoples' knowledge of art, architecture, science, medicine, and governance shaped colonial Latin America. This event is related to two must-see PSTLALA exhibitions, Golden Kingdoms, Luxury and Legacy in the Ancient Americas at the Getty Center, and Visual Voyages, Images of Latin American Nature from Columbus to Darwin at the Huntington Library Art Collections and Botanical Gardens. Learn more about this free event and get tickets at getty.edu 360. Welcome back. Before we get to my conversation with Jessica Placzek and Maddie Gobo, here's a clip from the first episode of Season 3 of SF MoMA's Raw Material. The two artists name-checked are Michael Heiser and Robert Smithson. 
Let's go back to Heiser's earliest works in the landscape, the ones that influenced Smithson. In 1968, Heiser made a trip into the Mojave Desert to a dry lake bed called El Mirage. El Mirage is six miles wide and bordered by two mountain ranges, the Adobe and the Shadow Mountains. Its surface is bare, cracked, and bleached by the sun. It can be seen as kind of this uh, almost like a white gallery wall, but tipped over. And artists loved it because it was a place without rules. It's a place where it seems like you really can push the boundaries a little bit. Back in the day, El Mirage was the place to push the boundaries. The boundaries of art, speed, and sanity. People raced cars, flew homemade aircraft, hosted cockfights, hosted raves, shot guns, shot pornos. A Bureau of Land Management ranger at El Mirage once said they had a vehicle hit a porta potty at 200 miles an hour. We went to see what it's like now. We're going to be going over some big bumps. Yeah, so strap yourself in. Did you take your Dramamine? I did not take my Dramamine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you you have to throw up, let me know and I'll I'll stop and let you help for sure. To learn more about El Mirage, we met up with Vicki Salazar and Zach Pratt. They're Bureau of Land Management Rangers, BLM for short. And we ended up on a tour of their off-road vehicle training course. We're on a crazy slope now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this truck is beast. Yeah, this is very powerful. <laughs> oh no, we're gonna fall off the Don't world. say that. <laughs> they also took us down to the lake bed, and that ride was much more pleasant. There's water at the other end. I know we just drove through there, right? I'm loving how the water is like following us. Great mirage. Solid mirage. It's like ch- chasing a rainbow. And then all of a sudden you get like almost there and then it hops away. <laughs> I did that. I was like, oh my goodness. It was like just like right there. I could see the hills behind it. While the land surrounding the lake is still used for off-road vehicles, the BLM rangers stress that it's nothing like the lawless 60s. Back then, Michael Heiser drove his motorcycle in circles on the lake bed, leaving strange crop circle impressions in the crust. He also dug trenches and etched crazy lines in the surface. Later, he brought his friend Walter De Maria to El Mirage. De Maria made giant chalk drawings on the lake bed, a huge cross and two parallel lines. We just worked really hard to change it and make it a more family-orientated They emphasize safety first and environmentalism, which has resulted in a lot of changes out on the lake bed. Since BLM started managing the area here in the late 80s, uh, we're trying to keep the surface of the lake bed its natural surface. uh, So we no longer allow donuts because it breaks the surface of the crust, which takes many years to heal. But there's a lot of things that still happen on the lake bed. Uh, You're still allowed to go out there as long as you're going straight. You know, or you're not breaking the surface. These days, Heiser's motorcycle drawings and Damaria's chalk lines would be forbidden. Those pieces could damage the lake bed's delicate ecosystem, an ecosystem we're still learning about. Jessica Plachek and Maddie Gobo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. 
As I mentioned at the top of the segment, the subject of this season of Raw Material is landscape and the relationship of American artists to it over the last few decades. Three of the pioneers of land art, Dennis Oppenheim, Michael Heiser, and Richard Serra, all grew up in the Bay Area, and two of the three made some of the very earliest earthworks there, specifically in the East Bay. So as you all have thought about artists making work in the landscape and and being uh, in the landscape, have you thought about ways in which the Bay Area itself may have encouraged artists to do that? Uh, This is Jessica Plachek. And uh, yeah, we actually talked to Judy Chicago in one of our later episodes. And while she isn't Bay Area, she is California based. And something that she said that kind of has stuck with me is that California, especially in like the 60s and 70s, had a very, um, what what was the word she used? Uh, like open and collaborative yeah, culture. Yeah, open and collaborative culture, but also very go-getter in certain ways yeah. uh, that allowed her art to really um, flourish. And also, yeah, the, the other artists that she saw around her were doing really well. And she actually, I think, was working at the Pasadena Museum at the same time as Richard Serra. So I think that's... Was being shown at the museum. Oh, was being shown Not at the working museum. there. Oh, well, she had a studio there. Oh, yeah. I guess working in the museum. Yeah. Not so, working for the museum. Not working for them. Judy would never work. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think Judy put it into really good words for us. But, I mean, you know, it's kind of just that American pioneer spirit. This is the logical endpoint of of those journeys. And it's always been a place where people come to kind of dream the impossible dream. I mean, I'm deep into gold rush research right now um, for my thesis project. Uh, I'm in grad school for creative writing. Um, and I mean, it's it's just always been this magnet for people who want to get big um, and want to think big. And, uh, you know, we had we had up until recently the space to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something, this is Jessica again, that, that reminds me. So I went to college out in Connecticut and nobody understood how big the states are over here. Um, and there is just so much more space. You can't drive through five states in two hours. Like it takes like 15 hours to get to Portland from San Francisco or something. So there just is so much more space. And in that way, more room for experimentation and a little freer, I think, to experiment. I always I've often thought of how when Oppenheim and Heiser made their early earthworks in the East Bay Hills, that that work was facing west and and really what was left of the west which was you know not that much it was almost like the work was making the point that you know we've filled up the continent we have gone as far west as we can get um the last place left to go is uh you know this is the last landscape this this is the logical end making art in the landscape not of the landscape you know this kind of series of culminating ends endses in in, yeah. in 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 their 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 earthwork. Yeah, and that was the recent um or somewhat recent kind of retrospective land art show was called The Ends of the Earth. That's right. That's right at Mocha. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think there is some of that like there's there's almost some fatalism to it too, you know, like we're going to fall off the edge, so we might as well make the art we can make while we have the space and the time. Um yeah, I I think there's there's something 
there's something freeing about coming to the end of the continent and and looking around you and saying, well, here's what I have. Here's where I've ended up. One of the things that this series of uh, episodes does or will do is, um, you know, you're not just hitting the big famous earthworks things. You know, this isn't going from, you know, Smithson to Nancy Holt to Sarah to, um, you know, whatever. But you're also emphasizing ways in the, the places in the landscape to which artists have gone. So in the first episode, you go to El Mirage Dry Lake and detail how many kinds of uh, creatives have been there from from Michael Heiser and and his um, intentional and intense impacting of the landscape to Janet Jackson. It's a story where art and artists get there first and then pop culture moves in. And, and that was kind of fundamental to your El Mirage story. Is that true of a lot of the places that, that you found links between the avant-garde and then popular culture finding that and moving in? This is Jessica. We are definitely a kind of a collage in our approach. So the second episode is much more about vernacular architecture and uh, sort of very, very non-pop culture, nor have they even been accepted by the mainstream yet um, in, ways, in ways that people build with the land, their homes. And yeah, there's a guy that we talk about Forestieri, Baldessari Forestieri, a different Baldessari. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he dug out a home out in Fresno uh, underground. It was, he made it over 50 rooms, like underneath the ground, and just kind of adapting to the landscape and how unbelievably hot it was there. And so he just thought he'd go underground and he did and just went with it for the next 40 years to the point that he had these like massive uh, gardens yeah. <laughs> underground. And, yeah, even... and he, was, he was growing trees under there yeah. um, and, and grapevines. Uh, yeah. So I think um, this is Maddie. I'm <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we're, we're interested in not only the connection between contemporary artists and the land, but also kind of everything that happens around that. Um, you know, so people who were kind of transformed by their experience of land in California into artists. So somebody like Baldessari Forestieri, I mean, he was a ditch, he was a, a ditch digger and a, a tunnel digger. Um, he helped uh, dig the Boston subway tunnels. And, uh, but when he came out to California, uh, he, he bought this plot of land and he was going to farm it. Um, but the quality of the soil was so poor that he ended up kind of becoming this outsider artist, um, digging out this, this beautiful underground kind of visionary structure. Um, so, so yeah, I think he's, he is by no means considered, uh, a, an artist or mainstream artist. Um, and, you know, had nothing to do with the land art movement. This was all taking place uh, in kind of the early 1900s. Um, he got to uh, Fresno in 1911. I, I would have to check that date. But, um, yeah, he, he, came, he came to Fresno kind of in the early uh, 1910s, 1920s, and was working before the 50s, you know, for, for several decades and had, had all of these ideas um, about working with the land and living in the land, um, that I think are really visionary, but that wouldn't, that, that are not connected to this, this land art movement. Um, he was kind of working on his own. So, so yeah, we're interested in, um, people who were pushed by this landscape into acts of extraordinary cre creation, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's less like strictly, um, contemporary artists and more kind of 
yeah, the, this this more mysterious kind of inspiration. Yeah, and then there's also other episodes, which we don't want to get too deep into, but one of our last episodes will be about the border, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border, and uh, how you could arguably say that it is the greatest piece of conceptual art uh, that conceptual exists. Conceptual land art. Conceptual land art that exists. But uh, yeah, and then artists have responded to that, like even most recently, Junior, the graffiti artist, he did a giant installation just uh, a couple months ago. Like like so many Western sites or landscapes, the border is a place that most people um, know about through through images rather than um, actual physical uh, experience. It's it's a place that's heavily, especially now, politicized, but that most people haven't been within 100 or 200 miles of. So Yeah, yeah it was really interesting that we actually went down there and we went to this place called Friendship Park, which is, it's only open for like, I think a couple hours on Saturdays and Sundays where you can talk to people on either side of the border and like even touch In pinky. San Diego. Yeah, in San Diego. But it was amazing to like talk to people and the people we were meeting in San Diego. And so many of them had never even been to the border because, I mean, especially in the U.S., there's just this vast, they, they create this really large no man's land between the city and the border. Whereas in Tijuana, it, the city is right up against that border. Mm -hmm. so. People are swimming like out along the border fence and right. having cookouts and playing music. Like, right. But on the U.S. side, it's it's dead. And, you know, there's border patrol agents watching your every move. Yeah. So. And it, there, there are some like horseback riders who come up and they just walk up, stare at the wall or in awe and then turn around. Um, although there were there were when we left, there was one surfer we saw going out there to surf along the border wall. And I, as a surfer myself, the waves looked really good. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that experience of the border is unique to San Diego and, and El Paso, I think, are probably the only, only two places like that. Wait, well, speaking of, of, of that, do you consider the places you've been for the series that will be in the series as particularly being about the West, or do you think of them as being particularly about America? I would go more specific. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I think they're about California. I mean, mm. everything is in within the state. Um, we stayed within the state on purpose, um, again, because it's such a huge, varied place, uh, set of landscapes. Um, and, you know, I grew up in in and around California and Oregon and, um, and, but Jess is, is more of a transplant. I mean, you're from yeah, and from Seattle, but, but I think we've both been fascinated by this landscape and she's like a true, like devoted San Franciscan, uh, <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're, we were kind of more interested in California as this kind of flashpoint for other issues that are, that apply more broadly to the West and to America. Um, I mean, California has always been, this kind of idealized place. Uh, it represented, you know, the, the promise of gold, the promise of land, the promise of agriculture. And so far, a lot of those promises have fallen flat or have only applied to certain people. 
And so I think that's that's something that we wanted to investigate is, you know, what happens when you look closely at this place that's a dream? Um, what happens when you dig underneath the kind of the shiny stories that we tell um, about this place to other people? I think Baldessari is, is a really good kind of uh, crystallization of that, like literally digging underneath the, the California dream. I'm I'm particularly interested in in California history as well. Like as a writer, that's that's my favorite subject to read about. Yeah, I I completely agree with what Maddie just said. Um, I I do think that we were very focused on California, although of course we, you know, we talked about other people who were inspired by California, like uh, like Smithson and um, some artists who were making art even in New York, but. Uh, but yeah, I think it focuses heavily on California because that's something that we're both really familiar with. Maddie is doing a lot of research right now and has been for a while on California history. And I have been a Bay Area reporter for three years now where I've focused on like current issues, but also I have worked on uh, another show where I've been digging into Cal- like mostly Bay Area history for like two years now. So I think we're, it's just something that we're both very comfortable with and very passionate about. One of the, the interesting things about California for me is over the last 200 years, um, it has uh, been a state uh, dominated by a Native American presence. And then three different um, nations have, um, you know, controlled the place, Spain, Mexico, and of course, um, now the United States. Does that history make its way into the series and how artists have engaged with the place? You know, when we think of Smithson at Mono Lake or, or Smithson and Nancy Holt at Mono Lake, that's not what they're interested in. But but is is that something that's changing or that has changed? Yeah, it's something that we were really interested in. And we even um, uh, we would love to be um, like to honor uh, who's been here, especially the Native American people. And in one episode, we do visit some petroglyphs, which are the same petroglyphs that Michael Heiser's father, who was an archaeologist, out in the Deep Springs Valley. Um, but we are hesitant to like call them land, like capital L land art, because we don't know if they would consider it land art. And it's also very, very difficult to find people who can talk really well on these petroglyphs. And if one of your listeners knows a lot about the uh, petroglyphs out at Deep Springs, we would love to hear from them. Uh, Yes, we are trying to include a lot of, uh, yeah, the Native American story here, but it's hard to speak for others and we don't want to speak for others. Yeah, I think that's, that's well said, Jessica. Yeah, we've been We've been working on this episode and um, I've been doing a lot of research, but ultimately, you know, most of the research has been done by white men and um, is thus colored by their identity. And and I just feel like we needed to take some time on this episode um, and really think about how we were presenting uh, our our experience out in Deep Springs and in the Great Basin um, because it was an incredible place to visit and you could feel the weight of that history there. That valley in particular had been uh, inhabited by Paiutes living the way they lived until the 1920s, which is relatively late. And so, yeah, I think we we felt that and we felt that, you know, the, 
there have been people thinking really deeply about their relationship to this landscape for a long time, way before the land art movement of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and we really wanted to talk about that. But it's, it's yeah, it's difficult to to kind of encompass all of the, the cultural valences and, and meanings that are kind of part of the petroglyph creation um, and, and interpretation. Uh, and we didn't want to just mess that up because they are incredible works of, of art um, and we wanted to do them justice. Uh, obvious question. What are your favorite places um, you've been in working on this series? Oh, we had so many Ooh. fun adventures. <laughs> uh, other, otherwise known as me filling up my, my, uh, my places to go booklet. <laughs> this is Jessica. And uh, it's funny that you asked that question because the first thing that pops into my mind is, honestly, Disneyland. Uh, we we spent had Tomas on... Struth on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about his pictures at Disneyland. So <laughs> cool. <makes> perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Disneyland. And it's funny because I, um, I was talking to my mom, uh, right before we started the show and I was like, mom, I have very powerful memories of Disneyland and specifically the Tiki room. And oh, she's just like, yes. Jessica, that's, not surprising because you've been to the tiki room at least 20 times you used to make me go all the time because she back in the day she was actually a programmer for alaska airlines and she had some amazing deal where she got like one dollar tickets anywhere in the country so like five-year-old me has been to disneyland a nice handful of times <laughs> and then i went back for this project and it was wild to go to the tiki room again and realize how noisy those animatronics are they're very noisy yeah clacking and <laughs> weird ro robot sounds you know that if i could if i could interrupt for a second that reminds me of how when i first saw uh thomas hershorn's installations built from aluminum foil and things like and 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 and, and things like that that my first way of relating to those those thomas hershorn's was to think of uh, the aluminum foil lit up by red lights in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, Disneyland has reached its tentacles into every area of American life. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a little bit of that in Thomas Hershern. Yeah. Um, I'm Maddie. Uh, for me, I think the coolest place was, uh, was actually the Deep Springs Valley. Um, that was the first place we went uh, in our summer of road trips um, and it was like right after we had found out that we got the gig for SF MoMA. And um, I have a professor, a poetry professor, Katie Peterson, who teaches at Deep Springs College, which is this experimental college out in the middle of nowhere in the Deep Springs Valley, um, really close to the Nevada border. Uh, it's a two-year institution. Until this year, it was boys only. And all of the students work uh, on the ranch. So it's a, it's a working ranch, a working cattle ranch. Um, and the students, in addition to studying, uh, each have a job on campus. So some of them are cowboys and some of them milk the cows and some of them take care of the pigs and some of them uh, farm. Uh, and so for the, co the course of the two years that they're there, they're they're learning how to live out in the West. And so so we went out to visit Deep Springs because my professor had invited us. Um, she was out there for the summer. Uh, and the, just the drive alone to get out there was one of the most beautiful drives I've ever done. I mean, we crossed like four mountain ranges or something. 
and you know past the the bristlecone pine forest yosemite. and yosemite and you know we came down from the mountains into this incredible like barren desert valley like high desert valley um with with a dry lake bed at one end and the college at the other and it's just full of like this amazing smelling sage like desert sage which is so fragrant but but the valley itself i mean just thinking about what it's like to live in such isolation Jessica Plotchek and Maddie Gobo, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Tyler. The new Stephen Shore retrospective is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. From Shore's wonderkind beginnings and his days at Andy Warhol's factory through the rise of American color photography and his transition to Instagram-focused work, Stephen Shore celebrates one of the most significant living artists' singular vision and uncompromising pursuit of photography's possibilities. Find out more about this exciting exhibition at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing. With more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash dolci for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Andrea Chung. An exhibition of her work is now at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. It's her first museum exhibition. It's titled, You Broke the Ocean in Half to Be Here. It'll be at the MCASD's downtown location through August 20th. Chung's work, including an installation she's planning for the forthcoming Prospect Ennial in New Orleans, explores the legacies of migration and colonialism in the Caribbean. Andrea Chung, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. I think a lot of the work we're about to talk about references Jamaica, the Caribbean, and various forms of colonialism. So I wanted to start by asking why a San Diegan who was born in Newark, raised in Houston, schooled in Florence, New York, and Baltimore has such a connection to the Caribbean. Uh, well, my parents are from the Caribbean. So my father is from Kingston, Jamaica, and my mother is from Trinidad. Being a first generation, it's kind of impossible to <laughs> not have that be such a big part of the work, just heavily influenced by my family and just trying. I think a lot of it started with just trying to understand how my grandparents made their way into the Caribbean. My grandfather's from China, 
my grandmother on my father's side was also, um, she was mixed with both black and white. And then my mother, um, her mother was mixed with Chinese and Arawak, and her father was mixed with black and white. So I've just always been really interested in, in sort of understanding the circumstances of what brought them there, what life was like. I didn't really get to know my grandparents very well, only saw them a handful of times. So it just was something that sort of sparked an investigation. Do you remember where in your training as an artist or in your post-school career as an artist, you decided that it was okay for your biography to inform your art? Because not everyone makes that decision. Yeah, I mean, I think I started in grad school kind of purely out of the fact that like I had no idea how I got into grad school. Um, <laughs> you went to the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore for grad school. Yeah. And I was, I had initially tried to get into the painting program and I was waitlisted, but I did get into the interdisciplinary program, which I think in hindsight was like a blessing. And my husband and I had just gotten married and moved to Baltimore and had no money. I had no money for support. Supplies. I was literally painting on butcher paper and black and white paint because it was the only paint I could afford. And I just really had no idea what, like, I had no idea what I was doing there. All of my peers were talking about pigments and art history, and I just did not have a very good art history background whatsoever. I was an illustration major in undergrad, so I didn't really know anything. So it was a lot of catch up. And I think in the meantime of me trying to catch up, I had to do something. So I just started drawing and painting portraits of my family. And that's really how it all started (laughs) was a lack of money and, you know, having these family images around and just painting. So at that point, did you know your full family history, family tree, family geography, or did you learn it as part of moving toward it art-wise? I knew a good portion of it, but I definitely learned more as a result of, of deciding to make work about my family in the region. We'll talk about specific works in a moment, but one of the things that your work has done for the last decade is mine, not just your family history, but broader cultural and geographic and political histories. Was history something that always interested you or was research into history kind of a byproduct of learning about your family? That purely came from my husband. He went to school, he went to UCLA for history. And I was so interested in the things that he was learning. Um, And we would have a lot of discussions about the things that he learned. And he kind of really is the reason why I wanted to go to grad school. I was so into everything that he was learning. And I got to meet some of his professors and they would have us over for dinner. It just seemed like the natural approach ever after having these conversations with him. I also feel like he's very much my collaborator. He's a huge part of my work. He may not want the attention or his name attached to anything, but he is a big part of the work and I bounce everything off of him. And we have a lot of conversations about history and the present, specifically about the diaspora. So yeah, I definitely attribute that to him. The histories your work engages most are histories related to colonialism and diaspora. And one of the works at MCASD is an immersive uh, room-sized installation made up of cyanotypes and watercolor. Kind of think Edruche Chocolate Room 
but you've kind of made the thing over for your own purposes. It's called uh, Filthy Water Cannot Be Washed. We'll have images on manpodcast.com. Um, and it engages the Caribbean's history of colonialism via lionfish. What the heck are lionfish? <laughs> <laughs> lionfish are an incredibly beautiful and seductive fish that is um, native to the Indian Ocean. And I had first seen them when I was in Mauritius, which is a um, a really small island that is like maybe, you want to say like five, 600 miles from um, Madagascar. It's also a, also a former colony. Former French colony, yeah. Actually, former Dutch, French, and British colony. The Brits being the last one to colonize them. So we would, I was doing a lot of investigation on food, and my husband was doing a lot of fishing, and he had caught a lionfish, and it was the first time I'd ever seen it, but I knew that they were highly poisonous. I was kind of nerding out on um, PBS one day, and they were like, the deadliest fish or whatever. And it was like number two next to a stonefish. And it was the first time I'd seen it. They were fairly large. They're incredibly beautiful, but they're highly um, deadly. Their spines are filled with poison. So if you were to get stuck by one, you would need to go to the hospital immediately, or you could have something amputated or even die. So it seems sort of like an interesting metaphor, especially because there's now this lionfish invasion that has taken over the Caribbean, parts of the Atlantic. They're now in the Mediterranean and they've actually found them like as far down as, as off the coast of Brazil now. And there's, they're an invasive species. They don't have any, um, they don't have a predator on this side of the world. So there's nothing to keep the population numbers down and they reproduce very quickly and they destroy ecosystems. They eat all the other fish. It's getting to the point now where they're cannibalizing their average size has gone from 12 inches to almost 18, 20 inches. And I just felt like it was, it was an appropriate metaphor to talk about colonialism and the destructive nature of colonialism. So as a viewer walks into a gallery at MCA San Diego, one is, with the exception of the doorway, of course, completely surrounded by these uh, obviously blue cyanotypes of, of lionfish. And I think you're doing a version of uh, the same kind of space for Prospect 4 later this year, right? Yes. So I understand, obviously, and, and, and clearly, why lionfish are a great metaphor for colonialism yeah. on many levels and layers. What makes cyanotype a good way to extend that metaphor into visual space? I'm also very much interested in the history of photography in relation to the Caribbean and how how that has been documented and how images have been used in the region. So slavery was abolished prior to um, photography. There's no photographic evidence of, of slavery um, in the region. And I, I found that really interesting, especially because we're such a visual culture that um, we believe everything we, we see I mean, now with the, you know, with Photoshop and everything like that, it's, it's a slightly different thing. But, you know, people saw, looked at that as like proof. And I thought that it was interesting that there is no evidence of that. And actually, a lot of the images that are used in texts of slavery in the Caribbean, those images are highly posed um, and ended up being used to promote tourism um, in the region, which is also something that I heavily critique in, in my practice. So it just seemed like a very, a good medium to work in. 
And I think that the the early uses with like Anna Atkins, they were all images of like algae and nature. So it just it just fit. It just seemed like it fit for me. And um, I like to work with low tech materials. I also like to teach myself something new every time I do a new project. So a large part of it was was doing that and, and finding something new to learn to have another tool in the toolbox. So just built a dark room in my half bathroom and I print everything on my porch. <laughs> I wash it off in a plastic kiddie pool in my backyard. <laughs> you know, That's I try awesome. to make I make things that anyone can can do that it's easily accessible both uh, conceptually and process wise. Another way you engage photography is through collage. And uh, we'll have some examples from the MCA San Diego show on on manpodcast.com. But a lot of your collage work involves removing people from images in once from which they were once included, either with, you know, say scissors or by bleaching or by other methods. What about removal is an attractive strategy for you? Well, that series, Mayday, and the series that sort of sprung from that after where I'm removing the figures from advertisements. Advertisements promoting tourism in the Caribbean, such as in Jamaica, for example. Right. I had started off kind of like thinking about the reason so many people were brought to the Caribbean, and a lot of it was through trade and thinking about people as exports and then thinking of ideas of labor and trying to find a way to sort of honor that labor. And I could never actually take any way and anyone away from their their situations in their environment so I decided to give them a day off so that's why I cut them out of I cut them out of their work environments to give them a little bit break and then also playing with the the shadows thinking about duppies which are what we refer to as ghosts and sort of like a haunting effect that happens when you when you prop the image off the wall slightly so that was that was sort of the invention of those pieces. And I also, I like to have a sense of humor in my work. <laughs> I like to be a little tongue in cheek with how I do things. So that's a well, large part of it. Let me use that as a way to jump in to a 2008 work titled Bleach. It's from the series Caribbean Life and Travel. And it's, uh, we'll have an image on the website. It says, uh, it's, it's a, a riff on an advertisement. It says Jamaica in, in, in large text large text on the left. The text is, people become Jamaica fans because of the beautiful sun, sea, beaches, flowers, hotels, and other reasons. What's the other reason and how did you access it with bleach? (laughs) I would like to first say that that is the original text to that advertisement. I didn't change anything except for capitalizing the O and other. That magazine is actually actually called Caribbean Travel and Life, and it is incredibly problematic. Um, it's been around <laughs> since like the late 70s. I mean, it's so bad. It's good. Like, I love it because it's just, it's just ripe with such terrible imagery and text. And that image is of Cinta Bronte, who is really well known for being in this wet red t-shirt that says Jamaica across her chest. Everyone knows that poster. It's really iconic. And I thought it was really interesting that she's actually not even Jamaican. She's actually from Trinidad. And she was forced to sign a contract to basically say that, like, she couldn't tell anyone that she was from Trinidad. And I I found that really interesting that the tourism board would use these exotified, exoticized, sorry, images of, of women to promote the country, that they would really heavily promote sex tourism and not really think about 
all of the amazing cultural things that are in Jamaica. I mean, we're more than weed, Bob Marley, and beautiful women. There's a, the country has a lot to offer. And I find that a lot of, a lot of tourism from countries of color are promoted that way versus looking at someplace like Paris. You know, you're not seeing a naked white woman, <laughs> you know, on display telling you to come here. And it's just kind of questioning that and thinking about who is this marketed to? I mean, it's not marketed to me. <laughs> no, well, another big part of, of both that marketing campaign and your examination of the Caribbean diaspora labor colonialism is looking at how maybe some of the ways in which the black body is used in the late 20th and 21st century isn't so different from how the black body was used in that region in the 18th and 19th centuries. Not at all. There's no difference. All of the images are of black bodies are that are in subservient positions. So if you look at posed images from um, the late 19th century and you look at travel magazines, they're all bent over. They're in um, subservient positions. They're laying down in the cane fields. That would never happen. And I find it so interesting that we've moved from one service economy of, you know, using slavery to harvest sugarcane to another service economy of having, you know, figures, these black bodies sexualized for your pleasure. And I find that really problematic and really interesting and disappointing, just very, very disappointing. Um, so this is sort of like just my commentary on it. Well, speaking of, of sugar and pleasure, you've been making work about sugar for at least a decade. One of the works at MCA San Diego titled Boopsie features a sugarcane field with an added collaged figure. Your work about sugar hasn't just been collage. You've made sculptures actually out of sugar, cast out of sugar. What about the history of, of sugar caught your attention and when and how did you realize that you wanted to both work on sugar and, and literally <laughs> sugar? Work and, uh, I have a, I have a personal relationship to it because my grandmother died of diabetes. She died having her second leg amputated. And, you know, throughout my family, there are quite a few people that are diabetic. I remember as a kid having to go to a, a, a class with my dad at the hospital to learn how to maintain his blood sugar. So it's, 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 you know, plays a huge role in my familial history. And then I had been doing all this research about my family at the time and thinking a lot about my grandmother and again, ways of, of honoring her. And I decided to cast my own leg out of sugar so that I could give it to her to replace her own. Um, and that, that was sort of the start of it. And just thinking about how sugar has changed the dynamic of the world. You know, it's this very mundane thing that we don't really think about, but it's destroyed so many lives. I mean, it's created a transatlantic slave trade. You know, it's, it's, it's peculiar when you, when you think about it. I always joke and say that food must have been incredibly horrible during those days, because I mean, when you look at the spice trade and how that also affected other parts of the world, it's, it's astonishing that something so 
mundane could could do that. Yeah, and I, I feel like we're still recovering from that. I, I don't think that it just stopped once slavery was abolished. I, we're constantly feeling the effects of colonialism to this day. I mean, we have a very unstable economy in a lot of Caribbean islands, and you know, there's really, really no. I don't know how you can come back from that. So yeah, I mean, it just it's just very personal. I also think that sugar is incredibly addictive. It's probably the most addictive drug there is. You know, you you can't avoid it. It's in everything that you eat, and this desire for this, just the strong desire for something, and and not really thinking about where your food comes from, just really interests me. Finally. San Diego, where you live and where this show is at the moment, has a colonial past, of course. New Orleans, where you'll be showing in Prospect, has a lot of colonial pasts. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a, New Orleans is an amazing city. And just, God, it's such a complicated history. Such a complicated history. When, you're, when you know you're going to be showing in a certain city, do you try to find colonialisms that are both true to your own interests, but that also reference that city's history, or is that less important? It depends. Yeah, it just, it really depends. I mean, of course, for, for Prospect, I'm definitely thinking about colonialism, colonial, colonialism um, in the city and the history. But New Orleans is particularly special to me because it's, it has such a close relationship to the Caribbean that it seems impossible to not <laughs> focus on that. So I am going to shift the work to sort of speak to to New Orleans. And I'm also trying to stay true to the theme that Trevor has, has set up. Trevor Schoonmacher, the curator of the show. Right, yeah. And then the location that I'm in is really interesting. I'm, I'm at the Ogden Museum of um, Southern Art. I also grew up in the South, so... I'm, I went to New Orleans quite a bit when I was a kid, and the space that I'm in, actually, the Ogden, the way it's positioned is it's right next to where the Robert E. Lee monument was that was removed, and directly next to the museum, and the museum actually wraps around it, is the museum, the Civil War Museum. <laughs> ah, so it's like, it's, it's kind of like the, the Richmond, Virginia setup. Yeah, so I feel like... There's no way that I can't comment on that. The fact that the building I'm in wraps around this institution and is literally a couple steps away from this monument, there's no way that I can can ignore that. So I'm definitely going to think about a lot of that um, while I'm making the work. And as for San Diego, I don't necessarily think so much about San Diego's um, history, but I did do a project at the um, it's the Cabrillo Monument. I was asked to do oh, a pro- yeah. I was asked to do a project there and I could do anything I wanted and I was like are you sure you really want me to do this I was like because this guy like was a horrible individual who was a huge part of colonialism and I was like I don't know if you really <laughs> you really want me to do this I was like I can't in good conscience not critique this so I I I did I um I find it really interesting that there is this monument to someone who was a huge part of the raping and the massacring of natives in this part of California, and that the ship that he came on, the San Salvador, which people in San Diego spent four years recreating the exact replica of it, was a slave ship. (laughs) 
And they have these events where the San Salvador boat goes across the bay and people celebrate. And I'm like, you're celebrating a slave ship. I don't understand that. I don't understand it. And I, I feel like ignoring that is a huge part of San Diego. I hate to say that, but... You know, if I, if a- I could jump in with one quick description, the Cabrillo National Monument is across San Diego Bay from where downtown San Diego and the modern and even the old city was. And and so uh, between San Diego Bay and and the Cabrillo Monument is, is Coronado. So even the site points to an imperative, which was quarantine. Right. So for this project, I took... I took all of the text that the small museum that's in there, I took all of their text and just edited out a few words. I like kind of left spaces where you could fill in the blanks and I posted them around the site like they were actual, I don't know what you would call them, like actual displays that would give you a description of, of certain things around the, um, the monument. So I kind of placed those strategically around the space, but it got taken down like a week later. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was a, a little more than, um, it wasn't just me, it was, it was quite a few artists, but I think that there was the politics behind it had was problematic and they ended up removing everything. But um, yeah, I find that very strange that the city would celebrate something like that. They have a Caprio festival every year where people dress up in like, colonium cosplay or whatever it's just crazy to me but it's indicative of the city it's a very segregated city it's very conservative you know for all the things that people say about texas houston is way more diverse than san diego and not nearly as segregated as this city is i have never in my life been treated as poorly as any other place than this city i mean it's just the racism here is just incredible. I don't know how I'm not in jail for like strangling somebody yet, but it's just, it's really, really hard. It's hard to navigate. It's really, really hard to navigate. I mean, I have situations where children won't play with my son. They're children. They don't know anything about race. Like, but that's the city. So I'll always be very stern in discussing anything um, regarding San Diego. I'm, I'm real, I'm a really big critic of the city and a lot of the social aspects of the city. Well, Andrea Chung, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.